Hi, welcome to Vista Community Church and happy Memorial Day weekend. I'm Colin, I'm part of the production team here at Vista. As a church family, we're all about loving, serving, and being in community with each other. So take a moment to share this with someone that you know that could benefit from it. Let's jump into worship together. Hey, I got a question for you. Have you ever found yourself in an unexplainable friendship? Have you ever had a connection with somebody uh, that you d- just doesn't even make sense? Maybe you have one even now. Uh, you, you can't really even get your head around why you would be together. I, I, I've had a number of those. One in particular that stands out for me is uh, one of my buddies in college. Now, here's a picture of my roommate, Larry, and the friend that I'm referring to, David. Um, David and I could not have been different people. Still couldn't be any different. Uh, I, I was uh, very athletic. It's almost all I care about. It. He didn't have an athletic bone in his body. If he was trying to even appear athletic, you would think he was just joking around. Uh, he had a deep, deep faith, and mine was just starting. I was raised Methodist. He was charismatic. He had shaggy hair. I was in the Air Force. I was high and tight. I didn't even want to hang out with them. Larry and Dave were good friends, so Larry kept bringing Dave around. And eventually, we became fast friends. Where I am today, who I am today, is largely as a result of that friendship and that man. He has prayed for me daily for over 30 years. I feel like I owe him in one sense my life, and we could not be any different. (laughs) It's crazy. We're going to talk about how valuable, unexplainable, uh, ill-fitting friendships and partnerships are in God's economy. It is not unusual. It's actually normative how God puts the most interesting people the, the, the strangest connections together for some of the craziest, wonderful things that God does in this lifetime. We want to talk about that, but I need to regress this a little bit and do a little recap of what we've covered over the last few weeks. And maybe it'll be helpful to those of you that uh, find yourself new to the Vista context. You might be asking yourself, who, who are these people? What do they believe? Where do they go? It's not that complicated. Really, Christianity isn't, in one sense, all that complicated at its core. It can get pretty challenging. It can get pretty life-stretching. It can get pretty difficult, pretty hard, pretty uncertain at times. But the core of it, the simplest creed, the basic manifesto, the foundation upon which we live is simply this. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Now, that has massive implications for our life. (laughs) right? It changes everything. With, apart from Jesus, this life doesn't go beyond the grave. Like all of your stuff, all of your awards, all of your aspirations, and your physical body will end and they will have no eternal meaning. With Jesus, our life is revolutionized. It's changed into something that is not only valuable and meaningful and purposeful now, the stuff we do now echoes on into eternity. In fact, our lives point to a hopeful future. It is radical shift. Now, when I said last week that the end of it all is your body in the grave covered by six feet of dirt, I didn't mean to suggest that uh, your soul doesn't have an eternal nature. It does. C.S. Lewis may have captured it best long time ago when he said, hey, 
you don't have a soul. You have a body. You are a soul. You are a soul and you have a body. You're going to end up somewhere in eternity. Either, either in, 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 a, in a space of separation from God and eternal punishment or a place of uh, beauty and wonderment and peace and shalom and everything right and good and beautiful forever. But apart from God, everything in this life stays in this life. It never leaves. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because we need to talk about um, what all that means in the context, our new, strange, crazy context that we live in right now. I want to shift to a little conversation, um, what I would call a somewhat unsettling conversation about reopening the church. By the time I get talking, I'm done talking about this, you, you might suggest that this is just me uh, trivializing a phrase or, or minimizing or, or slicing too thinly the words that we use. But I will tell you up front right now that this has me animated because it is part of the core calling of my life. Hear me on this. I am not criticizing those within the church body within the Christian uh, world that are making the hard decisions to reopen church even this week. What I'm concerned about is the phraseology that we use, the words that we're choosing to talk about it. The church does not and never ever will need to be reopened. The church is everything I just described. It, it, it is, it is the, the, the people of God making Jesus king, a mass of people who know him and are following him and are bubbling over into the world an eternal hope that is otherwise not there. Wherever they are, wherever we are, whenever we are, everywhere. If we minimize the church by using words and phrases that the dying world perceives as church is a place. Church is a club. It's a hobby. It's an optional, albeit beneficial, alternative set of values among like-minded separatists. If that's, if that's what we describe, I quit. That's not the church. And we do ourselves a disservice by talking about church like it's closed right now. Church is not a place that we gather. It's not a particular model or style of worship. Church is a radical world of real people ignited by Jesus, infiltrating the culture, growing as an eternal wildfire that revolutionizes the life. And we are working to populate an indescribable life to come. That is the church. Church is God-centered, Jesus-led, spirit-driven, mass of eternally oriented fools engaging, intersecting all the corners of our life and the spheres of influence that we've been blessed, bubbling over this eternal life into those spaces with people that are still far from God. 
You, church, do not need to reopen. (laughs) You need to be set free. The church will always be open, and it is open right now. Jesus asked Peter, he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You know what Jesus is saying to Peter and to the disciples and to you and to me? That my church will be built upon the rock of trust in me, Jesus. This is how I will build my church on your confession that Jesus is Lord, that I am the, the, the whole deal. And the church will be built and will continue to be built on that foundation and not even death. But that's what it means when the gate of hells will not, will not prevail. That, that, is, that is death, eternal death. Even that cannot touch the church. Everything in this world is dying except the church. God's church is alive and it's well. And then he tells Peter, he's given him the keys to heaven and earth. He's saying, what you do in this lifetime, in my name, as my people, pulls heaven into your earthly moments. That's the church. Nothing can stop the church. Nothing can close the church. Nothing can kill the church. The church that Jesus began and sustains is always growing, never dies, and certainly never needs to be reopened. Of course, we do need to figure out when and how we're going to get together. Right? That's a, that's a legitimate issue. How, where and how are we going to hang out? How are we going to embrace one another, encourage one another? But please, please, please don't speak in terms of reopening the church. That's the wrong message to the world. And at best, it's a luxury we just don't possess right now. But it's a luxury. We're evaluating Sunday morning on an ongoing basis. Making decisions on a monthly basis according to quantitative set of measurements. And I'm sorry, it it is not going to happen in June slim chance that it will happen in July, maybe August or September. We don't know. We can't know. There is no way right now to project how this virus will behave once we're back to even semi-normal social life interactions next week. We have no idea. Look, I don't want to discourage you or anybody else with an unnecessarily distant projection about when we can gather again nor do I want to continue to make short-lived promises that leave you on the edge of your seat, holding your breath and disappointed on a monthly basis. But I do want you to accept the likely scenario that we're not going to gather together very soon. And I would love for you to allow God to continue to root 
and establish the changes he's making in you and yours. God is up to some serious transformation right now with people and with churches and with the world. And when he takes those kinds of actions, our impulse is to escape it. Our best approach is to embrace it. Let the time and the pain do the work that God is using it for. In the meantime, we're hard at work arranging counseling settings for those of you severely suffering in the midst of this relational distance. We're developing models and practices and training that will allow us to permit and to have small group gatherings and connections this summer. Hang in there, hang in there, church. You matter right now. You matter right now in other people's lives. You're still the church. Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord to take the thorn and the torment away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong in him. Remember, the church is never at rest. The Christian is never sidelined by disease, distance, disappointment, and difficulty. In fact, that's where we thrive. And that's precisely what we want to talk about the next three weeks. That's precisely what we want to talk about over the next couple, even days, and and probably into the next months, the thriving church. And as you might suspect, to look at the thriving church is to look at the first church in the book of Acts. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to, I'm going to do the world's fastest recap of the first 12 or 13 chapters in just a little bit. It's a compelling history that can leave us wanting for similar experiences and results. Here's what I mean. If you look at the book of Acts and you read it, it's actually a very easy read. If you have trouble reading the Bible, you read Acts and you're going to be able to track with it. But it paints the picture of a geographic expansion of the first church. And it's punctuated by these spirit-empowered moments that are validating the church and authenticating the church and empowering the church at every turn. I did a quick study of of Acts and and, and found uh, almost 70 to 75 references to the Spirit of God saying, moving, directing, permitting, uh, excluding. It's like spirit this and spirit that. That book should be called the Acts of the Spirit. It's what it's all about. And when you read it, you will find yourself wishing, even as a Christian, where is that in my life? How come come I can't write a narrative that, that has that kind of confidence and that kind of clarity about how God is moving? Well, that's what we want to talk about. These accounts of the Spirit. And like I said earlier, particularly the partnerships that God forms in the midst of the growing church. We might talk about that one particular element, but to do that, I got to spend another few minutes 
giving you a little bit of a broader context than just partnerships. I want to talk to you about what we've come to refer to as the gospel's edge. We developed our first version of the gospel's edge concept in the early 2000s. When we were looking for that very answer uh, to the question of where does the spirit of God show up today like it did in that first century geographic spiritual expansion of God's kingdom? Don't you wonder that? <laughs> don't, you, don't you want it to be like that as a Christian? Don't you want your life to read like the book of Acts? Turns out our situation is relatively similar. If we pursue the same elements, in other words, you can experience those kinds of things if you live at the same intersection that those early church disciples lived at. What we see very clearly in the book of Acts is where the Spirit of God works and happens, where we see it most frequently is at this intersection of the people of God, the Word of God, and those that are far from God. The people of God, the Word of God, and those that are far from God. It is at that intersection where we see the Spirit of showing up uh, most consistently and most regularly and most powerfully. It's not a, this isn't a new idea that we came up with. This, this is us recognizing what is being laid out in the book of Acts. I, I first became more cognitively aware of it when I read John Stott's book, The Spirit, the Church, and the World. We've only just reorganized it a little bit so that we could put it in our own vernacular and maybe be able to hang on to it a little bit better. But here's the question. If you want to experience God, that you want to hear the voice uh, of the Spirit. You want to know the joy of being used for the purposes of God. You want to sense His presence. You want to recognize the work of the Spirit in others and in the culture around you. You want to understand God to a greater degree or a deeper degree. You want to discover the calling of God on your life. You want to enjoy true relationship with other people? You want to enjoy a sense of God's peace in the midst of troubling times? You want to get a hold and grasp onto your God-given identity and value? Like those in the first church, do you want to, do you want to keep a journal that reads without pretense things like the Spirit moved like this. God worked today in my life like that. Jesus whispered this to my friend. Jesus led me here. The Spirit comforted in this way. God showed up and... Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And what you do on earth is going to be replicated. It's going to, it's going to bring heaven and earth together. He even taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants to move in the believer's life, in the church's life, in a palpable way like we read it in Acts. But you have to live at this particular intersection. The people of God, the word of God, those that are far from God. The word of God. What, what, what is that? Well, we oftentimes mistake that to be the scriptures. Now, that, that's a good thing to be intersecting and have overlapping in your life, no doubt about it. But I would, again, to, not to be too technical, that'd be the written word of God. 
when they refer to the word of God in the book of Acts, there was no New Testament and they weren't referring to the Old Testament. Sometimes they would quote the Old Testament. When they were talking about the word of God, they were talking about the very confession I opened this message with. Jesus is king. That was the word of God. The word of God was the narrative of the story and the life of Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That was the word of God. You, you could call the, the, the intersection uh, the, a confession of Jesus is Lord. And the people of God, you could call the community of believers because it's not an individual sport. The spirit shows up where Jesus is king where the, the, the community of believers are, and we are co-located, to throw another C in there, of those that have yet to trust Jesus as king. That is where the spirit moves. In fact, Jesus said, you can't even say that Jesus is Lord. You can't, even, uh, you can't even conclude that Jesus is Lord in your life apart from the Spirit making that true. That's not a worldly thing. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? When Peter said, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Jesus said, very good. And flesh and blood didn't teach you that. That came from the Father in heaven. You can't make Jesus king of your life apart from a spiritual move of God. That alone is a spiritual space. Now take that spiritual space, overlap it with the community of believers, and then put some people that are in there that are far from God, and this is where the Spirit of God wants to move. Christians are pretty, pretty good at having one or two of those spaces where they interact, intersect, but that's not healthy. If you just have the people of God and the Word of God, that Jesus is king, you've got what we call a holy huddle. You've got a group of people that are buzzing about how great God is, but there is no need in one sense for the spirit of God to move into that space if there's nobody else there to hear it and make that decision and tie into that confession. If you have the, the people of God and just those that are far from God, but you don't have no, you don't have no confession, you have no, you have no uh, uh, assertion, you, know, you have no uh, testimony of Jesus as king, then you just have some short-sighted fellowship and relationship. It's a sad situation when believers and unbelievers are together and there is no confession. That's just a very short-sighted, you could say unloving relationship with Huge eternal implications. What if you just have those that are far from God and they just have the word of God, but no community of God, no believers? This happens. Like the non-believing world, uh, those that aren't Christians, find themselves faced with all sorts of truth. You can find it on billboards, bumper stickers, license plates, and movies, uh, tracks, whatever. The truth shows up. But if there's no community there, the incarnational, relational part of God is not there to tie things up. That's a mosaic life. That's just law going out there. If there's no incarnation, if there's no Jesus, if there's no community of God, then it's people that are just embracing really an idea or an ideal or a set of principles. It's actually very mosaic. We need to have all three. We need to live at that intersection. The intersection of Jesus and 
Christian community and those that are not yet part of Christian community. And that's where, that's where the Spirit lights it up. So what we want to focus on here um, in this series is the aspect of that sort of trifecta space, in particular, the people of God. The adopted family that God has cobbled together, the ministers, if you will, of reconciliation with God, those that are helping facilitate more God adoption, the chosen people that are commissioned to go by Jesus with the news about Jesus to make Jesus followers around the world. And I'm summarizing Matthew 28. This, this is a critical time for this reflection. Who are the people of God? An unfortunate swath of Western Christianity, as I've, I've digressed into way too many times here, has sleepily slouched into a mode of disengaged irrelevance. I see God more than I think I may have, have ever seen in my lifetime rejuvenating his people. And if that's happening, it makes sense to look at the blueprint. It makes sense to do some homework and see at least in part where God's headed with us. I'm only going to scratch the surface with the remaining few minutes that I have, and we'll pick it up. We'll pick it up this week in conversations that we have at noon on Monday and Wednesday and Thursday in devotionals and prayer and worship. And of course, next Sunday. And like I said, I'm going to recap the first 12 chapters of Acts, literally in minutes. It starts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You want to know who the people of God are? There's the definition. It is people that are empowered by the Spirit of God to be witnesses for Jesus in their city, in their state, in their country, and to all the ends of the earth. In a moment of radical vision, Jesus tells a whole bunch of formerly outcast and marginalized Jews that they were the new method of advancing the kingdom of God and that that kingdom would include people beyond their reach and beyond their imagination. That is us. That is us. Have you ever felt like you don't fit in the church? Have you ever felt like the church has been abusive to you? Have you ever felt like the church was actually wrong? Have you ever felt like the church was missing the mark completely? In many ways, you're right. And Jesus came to those very people and said, I have a place for you. I have something for you to do. Make me your king and I will change your life. This is us. American society at large has moved solidly into the post-church era. Social norms that used to press people toward church and the perceived benefits of church no longer exist. And the coming generations have no identifiable understanding of basic Christian precepts. The world at large for the last 100 or 200 years had a general idea about religion, about Christianity, and whenever things went sort of upside down in life, they would come to church and people in church would connect those dots and finish the deal. They don't even have, we don't even have dots anymore and we have no compulsion to go to church even if we have a spiritual um, inclination. 
But that's the way church has been up until maybe just 10 years ago. As long as the church was welcoming, <laughs> took care of my kids, finished on time, didn't get political and kept from being too weird, church worked and we reached people. That is no longer the case. And for the most part, just like in the first church in Acts, we have no real idea how to reach them now that they're not coming. In some cases, our very neighbors embrace values as different as somebody from the ends of the earth. The work before us right now as a church, and thanks for tolerating this, I don't know what you call this. If, if you aren't part of the church, if you're not a Christian, I don't know how this strikes you, but I'm hoping on some level it's authentic and compelling, but the work before the church right now is freakishly similar to that in Acts chapter, well, well in Acts, uh, the first, all of Acts, quite honestly, but particularly what we just read there in Acts chapter one. And then the spirit shows up just like Jesus promised in Acts chapter two. And it goes like this, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind from heaven filled the whole house. Not a violent wind, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. I don't know what it's like to seem like there's wind in the room, a violent wind, a hurricane. It sounds like wind, but it's not wind. Like, I don't know if stuff was blowing around and there was no wind, but they heard it, but there was no wind. It just sounded like the blowing of a wind. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on all of them. It wasn't tongues of fire. It seemed like tongues of fire. And then they got filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak what the Bible says in tongues, which means in context, they were speaking real languages, native languages that they didn't know that other people in the room understood. <laughs> okay, big picture, something crazy happened right here, right then, which it should be, right? The Spirit of God showing up for the first time ought to be indescribable with any words that we currently had. The people essentially in that room said goodbye to Jesus physically, per se, and hello to Jesus spiritually within them. And then here we go, boom, out to the gospel's edge. Chapter two, Peter grabs the mic, lays down the first sermon, and 3,000 people make Jesus king right there. That's a good sermon. The first churches begin to form in their homes. People start getting physically, mentally, spiritually better. The old guard resists the spirit of God and insists on hanging on to its power, staying the same and doing things like they've always done them before. Hypocrisy proves deadly. Things get real hard, personally real hard. Lots of deep sacrifices required. Chapter five, they, have, they make organizational shifts to keep up with what the spirit is doing. The first martyr, Stephen, lays down his life for Jesus' sake. No one had ever done that. There was no pattern for that. Who says when it gets really tough, we need you to martyr your life? He just did it. And when he did it, the violence erupted. The, the church was scattered as a result of this sudden virus. I mean, violence. 
And then the leader, the leader of the Jesus-following opposition, the suppression of Christians, violence against Christians, the leader in Christian punishment, imprisonment, and death, Saul, meets Jesus, and everything changes, even his name, to Paul. What we see throughout Acts and in the people of God are the same characteristics he's been forming in his people since then and today. What he was forming in them, he's trying to form in us. Faith, storytelling, flexibility, sacrifice, commitment to one another, authenticity, organizational shift, personal hardship, leadership and ministry transitions, life change, letting go of the past, willing to go anywhere, any do anything. And finally, strange bedfellows, <laughs> unusual comrades, mixed company, an uncomfortably odd band of brothers and sisters leading the way on the gospel's edge. Listen to Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, this is a Gentile, space, Greek, non-Jew part of the world, and there's a, <laughs> there's a church there, and here we was meeting together. Barnabas, an old seasoned leader in the Jewish church, Simeon, called Niger, who, who was probably very dark-skinned, that's why they called him that. Lucius of Cyrene and Manon. Manon. Manon was a guy that was brought up with Herod, a Roman tetrarch. These guys and Saul were worshiping the Lord and fasting together. <laughs> what was that like? And then the Holy Spirit said, and they went. That crazy bunch over the next few weeks, we want to introduce you to some of our unsuspected, unexplained partnerships. We want to show you the necessity for them. We want to show you the challenges of them. We, we want to talk about the other partnerships that we, we need. And we want to show you in particularly how diverse that community of God is. How diverse the community of God has always been that he pulls together. Because the more diverse that community is, the harder it is to get along, the more it proves that Jesus is real. And it allows us to accomplish a mission in our world and in our city that we could not accomplish in our own homogenous worlds. The people of God are a diverse community, partnered together, introducing Jesus to the world an unexpected, unfamiliar, dissimilar group of friends and coworkers on mission to reach more and further together. Not just organizationally, but personally. I told you about my friend Dave. I could tell you about Pastor Dan. Some of you know about the churches that we are connected with in Kenya, the 20-some-odd churches that we've helped facilitate growth and develop pastors and uh, that, that we've come alongside. But I could tell you about how crazy it is that Dan and I met and how quickly we clicked from opposite sides of the planet. I could tell you about Sharon Kozar, one of the most unlikely people to ever step out on her own into a, the mission field. <laughs> and God did it with her life. 
I could tell you about our first relationship with Young Life. I could tell you about Rob Crocker and the way God formed our hearts together and how Vista was formed with those two worlds and how I would argue that we wouldn't be where we are today had God not formed that partnership. And I could tell you how it goes on with Rich Darginio and his team. And I could tell you about Jesse in Cambodia, whose life went upside down a year and a half ago. And God is doing something new with his life. Here's what I want you to do. Reach out to someone different this week. Maybe someone that God has had on your mind. Not necessarily someone unfamiliar. Someone that is different enough from you that you might question the ability for you to connect or to the purpose for which your relationship might be meant. Reach out, check in, and ask this question. What's God been saying to you lately? And let that hang there. And be amazed at what they tell you. Be amazed at how what God is telling them is similar to what God is telling you or others in your life right now. One spirit, one God can bring diverse relationships into harmony. Reach out to somebody a little different than you this week. Ask them what God's saying. Cross a comfort boundary. Go where you might not usually go this week. Not necessarily somewhere dangerous. Doesn't even have to be geographic. Watch something you might not normally watch. Read something you might not normally read. Push yourself. Start getting used to being in spaces that you're not completely comfortable. And write down the completion of this fragment. I didn't know that or that or that. Reach out to someone different this week. Cross a comfort boundary this week. God is on the move, church. It's not a good time to be on the bench. It seems like it because God's changing the game. We like to sit on the bench until all the rules are established. It's not a good time to be on the bench. It seems like it. Church, God is up to something. Let's go. Let's go.